0: would you announce our fourth case for argument
1: 21-2871 south dakota united states versus samuel whitehorse
0: mr bell the court appreciates your willingness to accept this case under the criminal justice act and you may proceed when you're ready
2: thank you your honors uh, my name is Justin Bell. I'm an attorney from Pierre, South Dakota. Uh, because of COVID, I'm still in Pierre, South Dakota. Uh, I represent uh, Samuel Whitehorse in this case and in this appeal. Uh, Sam was charged originally and indicted for second degree murder, uh, assault with a dangerous weapon, assault resulting in serious bodily injury, and tampering with evidence or concealing evidence in violation of 18 USC 1512C1. Uh, at trial, Sam was uh, acquitted of the murder charge, both felony assault charges, but convicted of a misdemeanor assault by striking, beating, and wounding charge, as well as tampering or concealing evidence in violation of 1512 C1. This is about as narrow of an appeal as I've had in front of the Eighth circuit. It addresses one issue, and that is whether or not a violation of 1512 C1 includes an element that the natural and probable effect of a defendant's conduct would interfere with the due administration of justice. Uh, and then, along with that, assuming that to be the case, whether or not it was reversible error to not include that in a jury instruction. Uh, this issue was specifically addressed before the district court. There was a pretrial of jury instruction that was uh, requested that included that element. It was addressed in the final setting of the jury instructions. I guess I just say that to say that this issue has been perfected for appeal um, for the standard review purposes. Uh, Moving into the the issues, I'm going to do what I normally don't do. I'm going to talk about the law first because primarily it's a legal issue. I will talk a little bit more about the facts when we deal with uh, whether or not Um, It was reversible error. But in 1995, the United States Supreme Court decided United States versus Aguilar. Uh, That interpreted 18 U.S.C. 1503, or the jury tampering statutes that we have in federal law. Uh, That found that that statute, despite a clear or specific statutory language that says so, adopted the nexus requirement based off of the corruptly and um, endeavoring language was found in the statute. So there was a textual basis for it, but there's no specific uh, element in the language for it. In that um, decision, the Supreme Court found, amongst other things, that a defendant needs to act with the intent to obstruct justice and needs to act in a manner likely to obstruct justice as a portion of uh, that requirement. Later, the United States Supreme Court Arthur Anderson versus the United States adopted the nexus prong in 1512 um, C, or excuse me, B, uh, not C, uh, but did not discuss exactly what the um, corrupt language uh, required as far as elements, it just said the nexus requirement applies to 1512 B and it remanded it to the circuit court to determine what elements that would require. Well,
0: didn't, while you're talking about Arthur Anderson, didn't it indicate that this nexus requirement is more of a predicate for the statute's mens rea requirement rather than an extra element, which is the way I think you want this to be instructed?
2: Thank you, uh, Judge Grunder. I, I would say yes to the first part of the question, no to the second part of the question. What I mean by that is I think the mens rea element under Arthur Anderson and um, under Aguilar requires a specific instruction. I mean, similar, you don't normally have an element that says it requires mens rea. It's proven through other legal elements that are in the statute. Um, So I I do agree that that is what the Aguilar and Arthur Anderson decision relate to is the mens rea.
0: Okay, but didn't the district court in this case instruct the jury that the defendant lacked the requisite intent if he didn't know that his actions were likely to affect an official proceeding. And isn't isn't that sufficient to get what you're getting at, even even if we do assume that this nexus requirement attaches to the statute at issue here?
2: Yes, thank you for that question. And that, that's, I think, part of the heart of the question that we have here, uh, Judge Gronder. I would answer the answer is no. For, for specifically because the Supreme Court in Aguilar said that it requires both. The, the Supreme Court explicitly found that the corruptly endeavoring language does require, one, that the defendant act with the intent to obstruct justice. That's the first prong. It also requires that the defendant act uh, in a way that's likely to obstruct justice. That's the exact language from Aguilar. So I think that requirement meets the first prong of the Aguilar test. I don't think it meets the, the second part of that test that relates to this issue um, from the direct language from Aguilar. And and I agree in the sense that it would be nice had the Arthur Anderson decision expound a little bit about um, exactly what the nexus prong is and what it should um, require. It didn't. I mean, that's not uncommon. The Supreme Court remanded that back to the to the circuit court to to determine exactly what that means. But I would submit to this court that what that means is you go back to the Aguilar decision to determine what the nexus requirement is and what it should apply. And I would submit to the court that under the Aguilar decision, it requires both some, an actus reus and amend rea requirement um, that relates to it, and um, I think that the Supreme Court was pretty clear uh, that it includes an intent prong, and it also includes, you know, I don't like using the term, it's not technically a materiality um, prong, but it's somewhat similar to a materiality prong in what the Supreme Court said in abular.
1: You you know, I understand the argument, but I keep coming back to the idea that, that, you know, a jury instruction's got to fairly inform the jury of what the law is, and of course you can't just skip any element, And, and and I get that piece, but I think that once you talk about there being a corrupt act, properly instructed on that, defined a corrupt act as a wrongful act, then you go on into the explanatory note afterwards about the official proceeding, you define that, and after that's defined, you say... That the defendant lacks knowledge of his actions that are likely that are likely to affect an official proceeding, uh, then he lacks the requisite intent to tamper with the evidence. I mean, what exactly uh, is 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 missing uh, that uh, that would change the way that a jury would understand the elements of this offense? I mean, I I'm, I'm just. I'm, I mean, I get where you had different words you wanted to put in there i 'm not seeing a great difference in substance that that if the instruction been given as you requested it and 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 perhaps i 'm just uh not understanding and so could you please tell me sub what's the difference in substance because as i go through and check all the boxes i think they're pretty much all checked in here there's not too much inference that's left to be drawn and i compare to how you know i instructed juries for you know 30 years and how everyone else has been instructing them ever since i started practicing law uh and this looks like the kind of stuff we usually say fairly informed the jury why is that wrong
2: Thank you, Judge Erickson. I, I would say, and I will talk a little bit about the facts of this question. I, I think the, um, when you talk, when you look at what was actually um, presented to the jury, the only evidence regarding this count was the custodial interview of my client, where he said that he moved a garden hollow um, about, I don't know the exact amount of distance, let's say 15 yards, I've been there, but I didn't measure it, from where the assault took place um and moved it to under a deck okay still on the crime scene
1: right Um, And And didn't uh, he say why he moved it
2: yeah he did he specifically (laughs) said i moved it because i didn't want my dad to get in trouble okay Uh so i think that i mean it goes back once again and that's the argument that the government says as well he admitted to this well he admitted to moving the garden hole 15 yards because he didn't want to get his father in trouble the reason why this matters to go back to your question is I think a jury could reasonably find that Samuel Whitehorse intended to do this, intended to to conceal evidence, but that the action was not likely to obstruct justice, which is a separate element under this standard. That's the argument I would have made had the jury been instructed with that, with the argument. I think they, I mean, I can't put myself in the position of a juror, But I think it's pretty darn likely. In fact, somebody thought that because we don't know who it is, but someone moved the garden hole from below the deck to a van and hit it after the fact. Uh, I I presume it was the co-defendant in this case, but I have no idea. There's no evidence in the record for that. But I think the co-defendant saw it and said, boy, that's a bad place for it. They're going to find it. I'm going to go move it again and hide it. Um, I suspect that if you present that jury or that evidence to a jury, a jury's going to say, yeah, this is a nominal act that was done to try to, you know, protect his dad in the heat of the moment. But it wasn't likely to obstruct justice. It wasn't likely to impact um, the, the due administration of justice. So this, in my mind, is like the absolute best case to determine whether or not this is an appropriate jury instruction because the act was relative I mean it doesn't mean that the garden ho didn't have material it wasn't material evidence I know there's gonna be a lot of argument from the government about that and it was this evidentiary integrity wasn't compromised the government found it and was gonna find it if it was under the the deck um, as it relates to that so so that's our position as it relates to it I, you know as far as the the rest of the law I'll just make a couple other points one um, the uh, In U.S. versus P. Tuck, I believe that's how you pronounce it, the Supreme Court already found that the nexus requirement applies to 1512 C2. It did not address this specific element, but it found the nexus requirement applied. And that's important in the decision, uh, Judge Grunders' decision in U.S. versus Mann, since in GTA Mann, there's two U.S. versus Mann cases, um, where this court looked at this issue and it was not addressed because. the, jur- the district court actually gave the exact instruction that we requested in that case. A very, very similar instruction. We, that was the basis for our request for the instruction. Um, but I think looking at U.S. versus Mann, along with uh, the, the later case uh, PDIC, I believe that this, the circuit, and this is well brief, so I won't. get I'll, I'll reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal. But, um, but this circuit in this case law, along with other circuits who have specifically addressed this issue. Um, would rightfully say that this is an element that needs to be instructed to a jury based off the argument I previously made to responding to Judge Erickson's question, I believe there's a, um, a basis for uh, remand in this reversible error. I'll reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal.
0: Thank you. Mr. Cook, the
3: court will hear from you. Thank you. Good morning, Your Honors. Uh, may it please the court and counsel, my name is Cameron Cook. I represent the government in this appeal. I'm here to explain why the district court got this case right and answer any questions that this court has. I want to start with the standard of review and what the court touched on just now with, uh, with opposing counsel, because um, that's really the heart of the issue. In the jury instructions, the district court did instruct that, quote, if the defendant lacks knowledge that his actions are likely to affect an official proceeding, he lacks the requisite intent to tamper with evidence. In other words, the jury to convict must have found that the defendant knew his actions were likely to affect an official proceeding. I say it another way the defendant could have argued that his action, just as he puts it, just putting the garden hoe to the side or under the porch, it wasn't likely to affect an official proceeding. Um, so he had that argument. He wasn't denied a defense. Furthermore, that language in the jury instructions is almost verbatim the holding from Aguilar.
1: Um, so well, counsel? The- Counsel, yes. as, you're, as you're well aware, the other side talks about the uh, sentence two before it that says the endeavor must have the, must have, must have the natural and probable effect of interfering with the due administration of justice, and that is the linchpin. Uh, I realize the district, construction, district court's instruction quotes two sentences later. What about the must-have? What do you do with the must-have? Can you help us on that? Your Honor, as I read... I
3: grabbed the wrong case. as I read Aguilar, um, I do admit there's some there's a bit of a lack of clarity in what exactly the standards would be, partly because it's talking about the lower courts and interpreting the nexus that they're talking about. So but I think part of it's distinguished I think later on by just the words of the statute that they're interpreting the omnibus clause of 1503 and this corruptly endeavoring language which is different from 1512 C1 issue in this case. Um, and so I was gonna circle back to the end, but I think now, um, you know, I would submit that I think that it is a more so a foreseeability nexus, how that has been interpreted from Aguilar. Um, the way I interpret the defense's argument, there's this likely to effect. So there's this like, actual effect that the corrupt conduct has to have on, on, a, on the due administration of justice. If you read the Aguilar opinion, that ties into the endeavoring language that's on page 601, of the proceeding where it's talking about in responding to the dissent, how the word endeavor does have a useful purpose. And I mentioned the intent to obstruct and then in a manner that is likely to obstruct justice. So that endeavoring word is absent from the statute issue in this case. Um, so, you know, I would agree that that language, um, the na- but again, the natural and probable effect, I think is also a restatement of likely to affect that you have to know our knowledge that it's likely to affect that um, do administration justice in that case, so I think they're close to being synonyms there, um, although they are worded worded differently.
1: But I, didn't, it, I didn't see in the briefs. Uh, t- tell me the tell me the most direct uh, uh, statement by this court about the must have sentence. Well, if so is, to
3: Petrick, Your Honor, if what the defense is saying is right, then both the Supreme Court and then Petrick, which was a decision by this court in 2015. Um, are essentially wrong. Starting with Arthur Anderson, the court in that case could have just said, well, the jury instructions didn't include the natural and probable language, uh, therefore remand um, to put those instructions in. They, asked, they were talking about the corruption and two issues with that case, which are well briefed, um, the corruption and the nexus. You know, It's one thing to say that there was no proceeding at all in mind versus a proceeding wasn't started. Um, so that what I would say adds to this more flexible interpretation of Aguilar and this nexus. But then in Petrick, uh, this is key language here on page 445 of the opinion, the A Circuit says, we hold that a successful prosecution under section 1512 requires proof beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant contemplated a particular foreseeable proceeding and that the contemplated proceeding constituted an official proceeding, which then is defined under federal law, There's a footnote then to that sentence, footnote two, and this court approves of the district court's instructions specifically, quote, the district court properly instructed the jury that the government was required to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, a sufficient nexus between an official proceeding and Petrick's obstructive behavior, obstructive conduct in order to convict him under section 1512 C2. And then the instruction was that they approved of that this court approved of, quote, the defendant must contemplate some particular official proceeding in which the testimony, record, document, or other object might be material, uh, unquote. So that, I think, language Petrick really gets this issue right. And that is also in a much broader and another catch-all part of 1512, which is 1512 C2. Um, then here, I would go back to so that, I think, is the standard we're working with, Your Honor. Um, that is foreseeability that ties in an official proceeding towards the corrupt conduct. But if you look at 15C1, which is a statute issued here, it is much narrower, it didn't have the breadth concerns that the court talked about in Aguilar. Um, It requires a corrupt act, whoever corruptly alters, destroys, mutilates an object with the intent to impair the object's integrity or availability for use in an official proceeding. So it explicitly mentions an official proceeding in the text it doesn't have the issues of 1503 with corruptly endeavoring, meaning, um, you know, you could advise an FBI agent and not have any inkling about an actual official proceeding ongoing. It doesn't have that issue. It requires that the government prove that there is an official proceeding contemplated, whether or not started it needs to be a specific official proceeding. Uh, and so, therefore, it really doesn't have that issue that um, the court was trying to fix in Aguilar. And I would just say that as a starting point, uh, there's no reason to read into 1512 C1 uh, any extra elements like the court did in Aguilar. It doesn't have those problems, you know, I and mean, with all due respect to the court, but it is Congress's role to set criminal statutes inside the elements of those offenses. And absent a reason to do so, I don't think the court should step
0: in. And then here, you know, furthermore, you I think. F- Mr. Cook, are you familiar with our case, United States versus yielding? I'm not, Your Honor. Okay, well, let me just suggest to you that I think there we, we tied the Aguilar nexus requirement to the term corruptly. And that, that appears in this in 1512 c one as well. Um, so I'm wondering if your argument that the nexus requirement doesn't apply works. But if you're not familiar with yielding, it might not
3: help. Well I'm not familiar with yielding. I, I will say that the statute has what can be described as a nexus requirement, which is seen in the plain text that reference to an official proceeding, specifically there with intent to affect that is absent from 1503. Um, so I, I do believe it does have a nexus. The question in this case is whether the specific language taken straight from the Aguilar opinion discussing discussing 1503 should apply. Um, And as the court mentioned previously, this instruction that was given by the district court was essentially an Aguilar instruction, a strong wording of that taken from that opinion. And I think that covers what the defense is asking for. And I would submit that that's even stronger than what the government is required to prove in other cases, uh, as seen with the Petra case I've just discussed. Um, Unless the court has other questions, I think I've explained explained the textual argument and the case argument for why um, the defendant's specific instruction shouldn't apply. I just want to talk about harmless error at this point, uh, even if, as again, going back to the instruction, the defendant uh, could have argued that he didn't know, or rather that his actions were not going to affect an official proceeding, that it was not likely that what he was doing would affect it. That argument was fully available to the defendant uh, with the instructions in this case. It would not have changed things beyond reasonable doubt in the government's view. If that extra element was given furthermore, looking at the actual evidence, uh, just to state what happened uh, on a very cold night in February of 2020, the defendant and his father who ended up being guilty to voluntary manslaughter um, assaulted the victim. And then based on the defendant, uh, Samuel Whitehorse's statements, he admitted to seeing his father use a garden hoe to strike the victim in the head four times. And then the defendant uh, said he that he threw the garden hoe under the porch that night because he didn't want, didn't want his dad to get in trouble. At a different part of the recorded conversation, which was all played for the jury. Uh, the defendant also said that he didn't want his dad to go to prison, and that was why he wasn't honest up front about what happened, too. So there's that reference to going to prison specifically. Um, but essentially, so that assault occurs, which the defendant witnesses, he throws the weapon used in the assault under the porch the police are called due to the rural nature of the area. The police don't arrive for another 30 or so minutes. At that point, they look around the scene, interview people, take photographs. It's unclear what happened. They initially think the victim may have been drunk, may have been a drunk driving incident. Um, it sounds like he may have had a, um, a seizure or brain aneurysm. So there are other issues going on, but they assess the scene and they don't find any weapons. And so they leave that night. Meanwhile, the defendant and his father lied to both dispatch and law enforcement about what happened. Um, And I think the crime there of hiding the weapon used in the assault before law enforcement arrived to potentially find it, um, that is the natural and probable effect of that, hiding the weapon on a dark night when it's difficult to search, it's hard to see, the natural and probable effect of that would be to affect the new administration of justice. So even if the defendant got his instruction beyond a
1: reasonable doubt, this court can say that the outcome would not have changed. but counsel, you acknowledge that we have many cases and the Supreme Court, I think even has some that say not instructing on an element is normally reversible error.
3: Your Honor, I'm familiar with that case law, but I think what I cited is that if it's just missing an element, then if the court does find beyond a reasonable doubt, then you can still declare a harmless error. I think it's just one. I cited in my brief um, the case, but I think there is a way, even if it was an error just to admit one element, um, there is a way for the court to affirm the, affirm the judgment. So for all those reasons, Your Honor, I would ask that the, that the court affirm the district courts or rather affirm the judgment of conviction. And unless there are
0: any other questions the court has, I would pass my time. Just one quick question. I, I, uh, I think you said this at the end, but I want to confirm that if we were to accept the harmless argument, it's harmless beyond a reasonable doubt, right? Yes, Your Honor. Okay, thank you. Thank you. No other questions? Mr. Bell?
2: Thank you, Your Honor. Um, Two things I want to address in my rebuttal. One, um, the the discussion from the government that the U.S. versus Petrach and the Arthur Anderson case don't talk about this, so it means that the, the elements are proper. But in those cases, the issue before the court was the foreseeability problem. It was essentially the first thing. Just because the court did not address the other elements that were talked about by Aguilar, that does not mean by implication they were ruling with the government that, that that they weren't addressed before the court i don't think it would be proper to say that and in fact i would ask the court to look at united states versus Mann, the the to man case where judge grunder in, in the opinion wrote um when discussing the material the the uh, requirements for uh, a nexus prong explicitly found that, that that is a requirement under the nexus prong in the United States versus man decision, then said, we don't know whether or not this applies. We're not going to address whether it applies to 1512C uh, because the, the jury was pro- was instructed with that, but there was a sufficiency of the evidence claim and found that there was sufficient evidence to convict. I think that the United States versus Mann read with the U.S. versus P-truck, uh um, and the, the case cited uh, in questioning specifically says that the Nexus Prong is tied to corrupt the corruption language or corruptly language that's in there. Um, and it does apply to 1512 C prosecutions. The only other thing that I would add is um, noticeably absent from the briefing from the government or any mention of an oral argument is any case cited that finds that this prong does not apply uh, to this. There is not a single case cited by the government, uh, either in oral argument or in briefing, uh, where a court has found that that uh, there is not an element for uh, the natural and probable cause in this prosecution. Whereas, uh, as cited in the briefing from the defendant, at least the 2nd, 10th, and 11th circuits have explicitly found that this is an element for these prosecutions. Um, I guess with that, I would submit to this court that it is proper to require that instruction based off of the argument that I made before and this circuit's case law regarding the materiality elements in other cases, it would not be harmless beyond a reasonable doubt to not have been able to present the argument that I presented to Joshua Erickson's question about the fact that this would not um, have been um, Natural and probable, the natural and probable factor would have been the due administration of justice. With that, we would ask the court to reverse the conviction on this count and remand to the district court. I appreciate your time. Thank you.
0: Thank you. The court appreciates your time as well, and and that is of Mr. Cook. Case will be submitted and decided in in due course.